Today's reading will be out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen. If you are not there already, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm excited to get back into uh, this book. Uh, it's a wonderful book for so many reasons. I think a lot of reasons why pastors like this book is because it's so instrumental and it's actually very instructional for pastors. That is to say that there's a lot here that has to do with the ministry, preaching ministry, pastoral ministry, ministry in general, but so much more, obviously, for the Christian life in general. But what I want to do is I want to break up this section, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, because it is so rich. There's just no way that I can really do it justice in one, uh, in one sermon. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this up into uh, a three-part study of this passage. And what, I, what I've entitled a successful ministry or success in the ministry because there's so much on that. But really, what is a successful ministry? There's so much written on this subject. There's so many books that are written to tell us how to run a a healthy church, a successful church. There are so many things that are deemed success in the church. Obviously, you know the big ones. If you have a big church, that is an obvious sign of success. If you're bringing in a lot of tithes, that's an obvious sign of success. But really, what does the Bible have to say about what does success in the ministry really look like? And I want to look at four aspects of what is necessary, what is needed in order to have a successful ministry. We're going to look at strength, the the strength that is necessary for the ministry. We're going to look at sincerity and how essential that is for ministry. We're going to look at the issue of sobriety. And then last of all, selfless service. I'm going to handle the first two today. So number one, the need for strength in the ministry. Look at verse one again. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. And the the phrase that I'm really focusing on is when he says, we do not lose heart. And so probably we should start with the obvious. That is that In the ministry, there is so much discouragement. There's so much occasion to lose heart. There's so many reasons why a minister, a pastor, somebody in ministry at any level and at different spheres can be discouraged. We can be disheartened very easily in ministry. I know for myself as a pastor, it's one, you know, it's, it's, it's real easy for me to get discouraged if I feel like I preached a bad message or if I got a, a sharp criticism or if somebody was, is criticizing my ministry in any way. Um, 
a large part of that is that we're just very fragile. We don't receive correction easily. We don't do well with criticism uh, very, very much. And so we're easily discouraged. But Paul wants to hit on, a, I think, on a very critical issue here on ministry, and that's the ability to be strengthened in the ministry. Now, contextually, I think we should ask the question, why does he bring up the issue of discouragement here? Why does he bring up the issue of losing heart in the context here? And I think that despite everything that's going on in Corinth, you remember the, the overarching theme of the book of Corinthians is that Paul and the church are sort of on bad grounds. There's, there's a lot of issues that have transpired that has sort of soured the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. Early on in the book, they've been challenging his integrity. Uh, that's why he feels the need to say, look, our word to you is not yes and yes and then no and no, almost vacillating and going between a opinions so that what they might be accusing him of is duplicity, of being sort of double-minded and talking in, out of two sides of his mouth. And on top of that, we saw in chapter 2 that there was a specific individual seemingly that was cu- causing trouble for Paul and undermining his ministry. But then at the very end here, chapter 3, you remember he talked about the fact that for those his kinsmen, the Jews, there remains upon their heart a veil that blinds them to the truth, that blinds them to the reality and to the glories of the new covenant. And I think that's really what's given birth to this issue of discouragement for Paul. There is the glory of the new covenant. There is the glorious nature of the gospel. But in light of that, there still, for some, remains a veil over people's heart because it is only removed in the Lord. I think that's the nearest immediate context here. And I think it's also reminiscent of what Paul says in other places, like Romans chapter 9, when he reflects on the condition and on the status of his kinsmen, his countrymen, his kinsmen according to the flesh. You remember what he says there in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What an amazing statement. Really reveals the compassionate heart of the Apostle Paul towards his kinsmen. If it were possible for the apostasy of the Apostle Paul to atone for the sins of his kinsmen, Paul would be cut off for their sake. And so then, in the face of a potentially veiled gospel, I think that's the issue, Paul is now speaking of the language of strength and of encouragement and therefore of endurance in the ministry. Uh, Because there is a danger of discouragement, the Apostle Paul needs to encourage himself. I want to return to that fact, by the way, the fact that Paul is encouraging himself. Himself, And he does this in two ways. He does this by reflecting on God's ministry that he gave him and on God's mercy, on God's ministry and on God's mercy. This is what I mean by the fact that this is so deeply applicable for all of our lives. I mean, the Christian life, I think sometimes above the non-Christian life, can be very discouraging, right? Matter of fact, it's almost like 
the more godly you become at times, the more godly you seek to become, the more trials come into your life at times, right? I've even heard that said, that this is why I don't try to really press in to the things of God because there's such an escalation in my trials in my life. Well, rest assured, there are trials in the Christian life. Even sometimes the the Christian life can seem like an endless cycle of one dark providence after another. But uh, the question that's relevant here is, where does this encouragement come from for us? How does Paul strengthen himself? This word that he uses here, egkakeo, it's an interesting word. It means to despair. In other words, there was something there that was bringing Paul to the brink of despair. There's a temptation in the ministry to despair when you consider all the problems, as we've stated. According to one good lexicon, BDAG, uh, they claim that it means a loss of enthusiasm. A loss of enthusiasm. I thought, you know what? That so perfectly captures what the ministry is all about. You know, to be, to remain enthusiastic. Where's that going to come from day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? What's going to keep your heart fresh in the church? So this is deeply, deeply meaningful for me. First, therefore, he reflects on the ministry, right? God's strength-producing ministry, we could say. Look what he says again. He says, therefore, since we have this Ministry, And, of course, this ministry, therefore, refers back to everything that he's mentioned in chapter 3. Namely, his ministry as a new covenant minister. In other words, as he reflects back on the glory of this ministry and everything that he's talked about, he realizes that the ministry that he's in is a joy-producing ministry. Look back at chapter 1 in this letter where he... The Apostle Paul says that this is the very thing he's striving for in ministry, for himself and for the church. Verse 24, he says, Not that we lord it over you, that is his apostolic authority, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. That is, that that is an essential mark of a godly ministry, that the ministers are working with the people for their joy. And that is what the new covenant ought to produce. It is a joy-producing covenant because, as we've already seen, the internal work of the Spirit of the living God in our hearts. Because it produces righteousness and not condemnation. Because it produces life and not death. It gives life. It does not kill. Because it is abiding forever. It does not fade away. It does not pass away. Because it has such such great glory, superlative glory, when you compare it to the old covenant. It is on this ministry, therefore, that Paul says he reflects on all these glorious truths and he encourages himself not to lose heart. Do you do that? To make it more simple, do you reflect on the gospel to encourage yourself? Right? When the discouragement comes, whatever it is, the trial, the the difficulty in the marriage, the problems with the finances, extending it beyond just the walls of the church, brothers and sisters. When the real discouragement in your life comes, how do you encourage yourself? Through worry? Through anxiety? By focusing on the trial itself? Always remember, you should be like a bloodhound in your Christian life. 
That whenever you encounter a trial, always remember that it is designed by God to lead you somewhere good. Every trial is preconditioned for your good. Every trial is divinely designed for your sanctification. And so you should be looking in the trial for, what does God want me to learn here? What is He trying to teach me? What sin maybe may be the cause of this trial? What area of my life does God need to sanctify me in? What wisdom is He trying to impart to me through this trial? And et cetera, et cetera. So it is by reflecting on the promises of God. That's what Paul is doing. That's all that, that's all, that's the way you encourage yourself. That's how you stay fresh. That's how you stay enthusiastic about the ministry is you constantly reflect back on the promises of God in Christ Jesus for your life. The second thing is that he strengthened himself by God's mercy, what we could call God's strength-producing mercy. It was as if the Apostle Paul never got over the fact that he had been mercied. Now, we don't have a verb, mercy. That's not really proper speech, right? But in the, in the Greek, it is a verb. It literally means you've been mercied by God. It is a divine passive. God is the one mercying you. It's an amazing thing to be a recipient of God's grace and his mercy. And he never lost sight of that. This is nuclear strength for ministry. So when the ministry becomes difficult and the pastor becomes depressed or downcast or discouragement, when the pews are empty, when the tithes are low, when the problems are high, when the morale is on the fringe, how's the minister to encourage himself? To reflect back on the idea that he himself is a recipient of the mercy of God. After all, by focusing on the mercy of God, it produces a heart of gratitude. A heart of gratitude. Look with me at one place, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just to see this, and this is really towards the end of Paul's life, that Paul never lost sight of the fact that he was the recipient of the mercy of God. He always battled on this on this. Plain. He always used this as an art for his arsenal for spiritual warfare. He always reflected back on the grace and the mercy of God. First Timothy chapter one verse twelve. He says, "I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy." Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And by the way, ignorance there does not mean innocence. Ignorance is part of a hardened heart, of a futile mind. But he says, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. He says, This is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Yet... For this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King, see the gratitude, see the worship, see the praise, you see what it results in. Now the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Much like what we just sang. So notice, therefore, how that reflecting on the mercy of God leads directly to worship, directly to praise. Maybe just one other place. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, of the gospel, speaking of the gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power, to me the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. What's the answer to a discouraged minister, discouraged pastor? It's this. Who are you that God should use you for the service of the gospel? Who are you to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ? Who are you? What worm do you think that you are? What kind of worm are you that God should use you for His service and for His glory? You start reflecting on that, and all of a sudden, new vistas of enthusiasm start pouring into your soul. So this is what He's doing. He's reflecting on the joy of the ministry based on the mercies and the promises of God what the Apostle Peter called precious and magnificent promises. See, you have to be inspired when you look at the promises of God. These are not just promises of God. These are precious and magnificent promises. But if you just deem them to be, yeah, I know about the promises of God, they're not precious to you. If you just deem them, yeah, I know all those things, they're not magnificent. You don't talk about magnificent things that way. You don't hold and esteem precious things with a light and fickle and apathetic heart. You can't. You can't. But you will relish the promises of God. And as you do, brothers and sisters, you will have the encouragement that you, that you need to live the Christian life. Now let me point this out by way as a little caveat here. Because it got me thinking, it was so convicting to me as I was studying this. What is Paul doing? He is strengthening himself. There's a potential for discouragement. And Paul says, I will not get discouraged. As I reflect on the ministry, as I look at God's mercy, I won't lose heart. There's a resolve not to lose heart. And more than that, there is a minister here that is encouraging himself in the Lord. That is a mark of a healthy minister, by the way. To be able to encourage yourself in the Lord. The pastor, more than most, has to remain enthusiastic about the church, right? I mean, what if I walked in here today and next week with my head hang low and my heart heavy, fluttered, frustrated, discouraged, discontent, worried, angry, upset, snappy, moody. Oh, I'd be disqualified at that point. Probably kick me out of the church. But you get my point. Above most, the pastor has to have this ability to to pull himself up by the mercies of God, to, to arouse himself to lay hold of God. And if he can't do that, he is on really dangerous ground. No, brothers and sisters, the pastor has to be spiritually fit enough to where so he knows the way back to life and vitality. And renewal. If you can't renew yourself spiritually, how are you going to renew others? 
If you can't encourage yourself in the Lord, how are you going to be encouragement to others? Who wants a pastor that's just a, a bummer to be around? Who wants a pastor that's just going to bring you down? No. The Apostle Paul was such a great encourager, not because he never needed encouragement. No, don't, get, don't, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. Oh, no. The, the Word of God is clear. Pastors do need encouragement. Paul speaks about being refreshed by the presence of other brethren. Oh, no. I would say maybe even more than most pastors need encouragement. But there's just a, 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 a balance there where the pastor has to be able to encourage himself in the Lord, thereby strengthening himself for his calling. Now, let's move on to the second thing because this makes up a bigger issue here. Uh, In verse 2, Paul gives us what I believe is the need for sincerity. There's a need for strength, and there's also a need, essential need, for sincerity. We could have used other words, but I'm trying to stick with the S's, you know? So I use the word sincerity. Look at verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the Lord. This is such a deep, deeply necessary thing. To be a sincere, transparent, pure, godly, holy minister. That's what he's saying. When he says he has renounced the hidden things of shame, he's speaking of anything that can be deemed sinful or evil or wicked or devious. It's amazing, but to see that for the apostle, there's a resolution that he makes. Matter of fact, there's two, if you notice in the context. There, there, there has to be certain things that a godly minister denounces And there has to be certain things that a godly minister declares. He denounces certain things and he declares certain things. That's the way that Paul lived his life. This deep sincerity that the Apostle Paul has, that's how he conducted himself in the ministry, period. He had a staunch, staunch resolve to be absolutely upright in everything that he did, beyond reproach. He was dominated first and foremost, I want to point out to you, he was dominated first and foremost by the fact that he was approved by God. Brothers and sisters, to be approved by man is one thing. To have certain people that applaud you and pat you on the back and tell you what a great pastor you are, what a great message you just preached or how great your church is or something like that, that's one thing. But if you don't cut mustard with God, it's all for nothing. It's all a show. And so the pastor has to be first and foremost upright before his God. And that's why he uses this little phrase, before God. To show you this, maybe turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 is really, it's it's, it's really dynamite because if we take heed to this, we will sidestep a whole lot of other steps in the process to integrity. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, let a man regard us in this manner. You see there in the text? 1 Corinthians 4.1. Let, let a man regard us in this manner as stewards of Christ, or servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful or trustworthy. 
But to me, it is a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, this is amazing, I do not even examine myself. Meaning I don't even judge myself. I don't pass judgment on myself. My examination is not the final arbiter of my ministry. He says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. That could have been almost a concession. Although I am conscious of nothing else, uh, nothing against myself. He says, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. You see that? Isn't that amazing? That will keep the fear of God fresh in your heart. To know, to look upon your life and to think, oh, well, there's really nothing that I can see in my life right now that would be some sort of besetting sin or something in my life that would be uh, disqualifying me for this or that or hindering my sanctification. But even more than that, to be ready to say, look, as deep and personal as my introspection is of my own life and my own heart and my own ministry, that is not the final authority. I am not the final arbiter of my ministry. There is one ultimate and final judge over all things, and He is the one who will judge me and judge my ministry. Paul cared nothing about the crowns of human applause or popularity. Brothers and sisters, the only crown that he cared about was the crown of righteousness that he would receive from the Lord. The only thing he cared to hear at the end of his race the Apostle Paul was good done, my, uh, good, done my, my good and faithful servant. That's all he wants to hear is the praise that comes not from man, but from God. And he was resolved to do this. He was absolutely resolved. You know, the Puritans had certain resolutions, right? You've heard of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. That was real common practice back in, uh, back in the day. Puritans made resolutions like that all the time. Jonathan Edwards are just, you know, got famous. But they would make all sorts of resolutions like that. Resolve to live in this way. Resolve to do this. Resolve to do that. Right now I'm studying the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. And I'm just so impacted by the man's staunch commitment to integrity. A staunch commitment to live for the glory of God with all of his might. It's beautiful. But Paul begins by these resolutions. And he begins with a resolution, the negative, what he renounces. He says, we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. And by beginning there, he begins by isolating the harmful things in ministry. You know, there is sort of a there is sort of a, uh, an illusionary type of ministry approach. You can't just focus on the positive things of ministry, right? Well, that's so fun to do, right? Because that's easy to do. It's easy to focus on all the good things in the church, the positive things, right? And for sure, it is good for a pastor, it's good for a church to be filled with people that are edifying and encouraging. I was reading a ministry manual by Jay Adams, and he said one of the things that a pastor has to do in the church is that he has to surround himself with optimistic and positive people. Okay, there's a sense in which that's true. Who wants to be around a bunch of, you know, uh, I don't know, vultures, right, that are just ready to tear you to pieces? No, of course there is that. But there's also a, a realism in the ministry, there's also the fact that we have to be ready in the church to focus on the things that are negative and bad. We have to be discerning. We have to isolate those things that are harmful to the health of the church, and we have to be resolved to avoid them, to reject them, to get them out 
of the church. So there has to be a realistic approach to the ministry. A true shepherd will not only care to promote the unity, the things that people all agree with, but he also has to be willing to confront the negative things in the church. And yet, the Apostle Paul did this very thing. You can see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, when the Apostle Paul committed certain principles to Timothy, actually getting quite specific to Timothy and saying, look, there are actual specific individuals in the church that you need to be careful of. He speaks of them in 2 Timothy 2.17. He says, among those who have gone astray, that were leading people astray, he says, are Hemenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth and saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. They upset the faith of of some. Shameful things can be that. Heresy, division, disturbances, divisiveness in the church. But on a personal level, it can also speak of anything that causes shame. This gets to the pastor's personal life. This means the pastor cannot be living in sin, cannot be living a reproachable life, cannot be living a life of, of, of um, that, that would disqualify him, a life of secret sin, a life of of, of uh, uh, immorality or financial impropriety or you name it. And I think as Paul gives these descriptions, he gets more and more specific, right? First, he lays out that general overarching description, the things hidden because of shame, because of shame. And then he gets a little bit more specific. He says, not walking in craftiness, the word crafty just means anything that is deceitful, anything that is done by trickery or, get this, pragmatism. That's really interesting, right? You know that the origin of this Greek word literally means the willingness to do whatever it takes to accomplish your ends. It's the same word that was used when they interrogated Jesus and they, they, sought, to, they sought to corner him with their questions. Trick questions that they sort of conditioned to trap him in his words. Paul had no such trickery. Paul renounced all such hidden motives, all such hidden agendas or schemes in the ministry. He outright rejected that type of ministry. And then I think he gets even more specific, and there is sort of an intensification here, right? Lastly, he says this. Finally, he, he ends on this point. He says, not adulterating the Word of God. Adulterating the Word of God means that you're handling the Word of God in a manipulative, beguiling way. You're using it, once again, almost synonymously to the previous word, you're using it to accomplish your own deceptive means. You're using it, in other words, for spiritual abuse. You're handling the Word of God in such a way so that you can manipulate and abuse people's lives spiritually speaking. You saw earlier on in uh, this book, look at chapter 2 again, he ends the chapter with a very close synonym to this word. He says, for we are not like many, in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in, the, in, in Christ in the sight of God. And there, that Greek word, peddling the word, definitely has monetary connotations. Using the word of God in order to, certain, to, to, to achieve certain financial 
ends. That's what Paul told Timothy as he listed the qualifications. He said, a a, a minister cannot be someone who has given to sordid gain. Greed. You cannot have a lust for money. This is exactly what Paul is renouncing. Now, if you care about the background of this book, also encrypted, I believe, in these words is sort of a response that Paul is giving to those that would attack his, his integrity. They've already attacked his integrity because they're saying, you know, Paul's double-minded. He's duplicitous. He's saying yes and no at the same time. He's saying he'll come visit us, and then he doesn't come visit us. What's his motive? They'll go on to challenge his motive on more, on more financial lines later, uh, almost accusing him again of financial impropriety. So this has, this has great impact on the situation there in Corinth. But this is actually used to counter the false teachers in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, this is what Paul says, that there were some who were actually trying to do this, taking advantage of the church in lieu of Paul's absence. He says in uh, verse 19 of chapter 11, For you, being so wise, this is spoken with uh, a bit of sarcasm, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself, if anyone hits you on the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. What an in, what what a slap on their face, as it were, right? They were actually in, they were really truly enduring these very things they might have been accusing him of by way of these false teachers. But that's the things that a, a minister has to reject: all sorts of sinful activity whatsoever in his life and in the church. It didn't matter. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look back earlier, that's kind of his point in chapter. Uh, chapter 2 at, at verse 12 there, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 12, he begins by talking about his, his confidence and his conscience, and he says the reason why is because of the, the conduct that he had in the world and in the church. We might come back to that, but secondly then is not just what you denounce, but also what you declare, what you proclaim. The word he uses here, what you manifest He says, but by a manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That is that the pastor has to be obsessed with manifesting the truth. Here's the sincerity. The sincerity in your own life. You have to love the truth in the inward man, in in the inward parts when no one sees. You have to love the truth there. You have to love the truth that you're preaching, that you're proclaiming. You have to love the truth ultimately of God's Word. And that's what he's saying. And this is at an all-time low, right? In the church today. By and large, well, sure, we have our circles. We have our, you know, reform circles. We have our exposition circles that we run in. But you start getting out of that a little bit and branching out and looking out of the landscape of evangelicalism today. And what you find is that the world of the church is in a wasteland, a wasteland of light, soft, frothy preaching with no substance no reality, nothing, nothing convicting and apocalyptic and nothing that will, that will convict your heart of sin. And we understand the church and its seeker-sensitive context and all of that that goes on. 
truth is at an all-time low as far as priority goes in the church. Um, I like what David Wells says in his book, No Place for Truth. David Wells points out several unfortunate directions that the church is heading in. And this is something that he wrote back in the 90s. What would he write now? Probably the same thing, just repeat what he wrote. But back in the 90s, he was talking about the direction of the seeker-sensitive church, of the market-driven church, of the consumer-driven church, of the psychological church. And on and on it goes. Listen to what he says. He talks about what he calls unhappy results from all of this. He says, most important among these things is the inculcation of habits of thought that are unfriendly toward theology, a development that has rendered ministers less willing and able to mediate theological truth to the church. To the extent that this is occurring, a vital link in doing theology has been snapped For it is the church that should be the primary auditor for theology. That's right. The church should be a, exactly what Paul says, it should be the buttress of the truth. It should be the place where the truth is propped up and supported. It should be the the place where the truth of God's word is being disseminated, where people are being discipled in the word of God. In the Word of God. This is Paul's life, after all. Listen to these words. Colossians 1 28. He says, We proclaim him. This is the substance of his ministry. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. See, he will not rest until every single one of you is shaped and molded and sharpened and you're you're turned into this mean, lean, theological machine, right? That's the aim. Every man is equipped in Christ. Every man, we could say, can defend the essentials of the Christian faith. Can you do that? Can you define right now what justification means? What is imputation? What does sanctification mean? Can you give me a definition of glorification? You see, brothers and sisters, when we get down to business, sometimes it is only because of our own lack and laziness and our own life of not giving ourselves to the study of God's Word that we are in the ignorance that we're in. We have to be willing to work hard at this. This is God's book. This is God's Word. This is His His treasure trove of revelation and truth. And we are to be in a lifelong endeavor to love and to learn this book. That's what it's all about. So Paul says, this, for this purpose, in verse 29, I labor, striving according to His power which works mightily within me. In Acts chapter 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and, the teaching, you, and teaching you publicly from house to house. The Apostle Paul was appointed a teacher, a preacher of Christ. But what's the goal of all of this? The goal of this is found in that last phrase here in chapter 4. Look back there again with me. He says, excuse me, in verse uh, 2 of chapter 4, he says here, by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Isn't that amazing? Say whatever you want about Paul's personality. 
Maybe he wasn't the funniest. Maybe he wasn't the coolest, hippest pastor in the world, right? But Paul would say, look, you know that I have shown you by my preaching and my teaching that I've proven myself to you to be knowledgeable, to be a proclaimer of the truth in everything, in everything. That's what he says. As a matter of fact, later on in the book, he will talk about that very thing. He will talk about the fact that he spoke the truth to such a, in such a way that they could bring no reproach against him. They knew he had fully carried out the preaching of the Word of God. And this is what Paul is saying. In word and in deed, he could commend his whole life to every man's conscience. Isn't that amazing? Every single one of us should have that aim. We should have that goal right there at work, at school, in the family, at home, in the church, in society. We should have that same goal that no matter what man you ask, he can commend himself to their conscience, knowing that his life will remain blameless in the sight of God. In other words, there will not be one thing that will stick to the life of the Apostle Paul. There will not be one instance where someone can bring in a valid reproach on his life. Oh, what a, what a staunch devotion to integrity. Something that is at an all-time low today, right? Something that you give your word, your word means nothing. We tell people we'll be there, you're not there. You tell people we'll do it, you don't do it. You tell people that you mean it, you don't mean it. You say you'll pray for them, you don't pray for them. Brothers and sisters, let it not be named even among us. Let us be people of integrity, a staunch devotion to integrity before God Almighty, knowing that it's in His presence that we make such commitments and break them. The Apostle Paul was so committed to this because he knew that his life was moving like a drumbeat, marching forward, ever forward, to the great day, the great assize, the great assessment before God's great or Christ's great judgment seat where he would have to give an account for everything that he did in the body, whether good or bad. He would have to give an account for his sheep, give an account for his ministry, give an account for his life. And so will you. Everything, you have to give an account for it. The Apostle Paul says back in one, chapter 1, verse 12, that this was the basis upon which he could boast. Is that your life? Could you say that? My integrity is boastworthy. I could boast about my integrity. He says, this is our proud confidence, which is the word boasting. We could boast here the testimony of our conscience, conscience, that in holiness and in godly sincerity, not in carnal wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. It didn't matter if you went into the sphere of the unbeliever, Paul had integrity. It didn't matter if you went into the sphere of God's kingdom. Paul had integrity. As a matter of fact, he says, especially toward you. He doesn't mean I had a little less integrity in the world. <laughs> what he means is you are, the, you are more of a recipient 
of his integrity than the world because you are able to know him and discern him and see him. One commentator, Paul Barnett, says this, Paul is confident that through Christ, the revelation that he makes before others in the gospel that he preaches and the life that he lives will be acceptable and pleasing to Christ his judge. Now turn with me quickly to Philippians chapter 2 because I want to show you that this basic progression is applicable for every single person in Christ who is here. This is not just for the apostles. This is not just for the pastors. This is not just for a select few, a clique in the church who are really spiritual. This is for every believer. This is for every church. This basic progression of a life lived in integrity for the sake of witness that will one day have to give an account. That's the progression. Look at Philippians 2.14. He says, I think this very thing. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God beyond reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. There's the integrity among whom you appear, or shine is the word, as lights in the world. There's the witness. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, there's the future assessment. I will have a reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The lack of your personal integrity can undo a ministry. The lack of your personal integrity can undo the things that I'm trying to do right here from this pulpit. But if we live lives, integrous lives, blameless lives, innocent lives, as children of God in the midst of what I would even say an ever-increasing crooked and perverse generation, we will shine like lights. And on the day of Christ, we will stand approved. We will stand on that day. We will hold to our integrity. Our works will not be burned up like chaff, but they will endure unto eternal reward. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, Father, I know that I'm preaching so much of this material to the choir God, because it is my heart to emulate the Apostle Paul, and yet, Lord, I know how much I fall short. And so, Father, I come to you as someone prayed today in our prayer meeting. I come to you as a sinful beggar, asking you, God, please, make me your man. And make these dear brothers and sisters here, make them your dear children. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk blameless in a world of insane debauchery, in a world of diabolical violence and futility and vanity. Please, God, give us more of Christ, more of heaven, less of earth. Help us, Lord, to be integrous, Lord, in every sphere that you have entrusted to us. Though some of us are not entrusted with the sphere of the pastoral ministry, we are all entrusted with some sphere. So, God, I pray for your people at work. I pray for your people in the family. I pray for the, for the fathers and the mothers that are 
given such a, such a high calling. Such a high calling to pour into their children at home, to be good homemakers, good leaders at home for husbands and wives. God, I pray that they would take that calling serious, that they wouldn't trifle, they wouldn't play games in their homes. God, make us more sober, and we look forward to next week where you will show us the sobriety with which Paul lived his life. And I pray that you would make us more sober-minded in all things. We bless you. We thank you, God. We pray that whatever was spoken in truth, you apply it, and whatever was not, that you would discard it by your grace. We thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I just want to leave you with uh, Colossians chapter 2, just by way of benediction. Paul says this. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I'm so glad that God has not done with us yet. I'm so glad that though we have not attained to the things that I've preached today, and Lord knows I have not, um, I'm constantly reminding my wife of that, that if I were to preach only the things I obtained to, I would not be preaching high enough. So uh, there's always more grace. But I pray that God would encourage you and strengthen you as you strive for that standard that he has revealed in his word. Thank you. God bless you guys. Pray that you guys would stay fellowship and have a great day. God bless you all.